a few weeks ago, as I was staying home, staggering how many churches are broadcasting their services. And I don't think there was any time in church history where Christians are exposed to so many church services and variety of pastors and preachers' sermons. So I was staying home, and I was tuning in to, I don't know, one church that I knew. And he was talking about a revival that is taking place in America, Asbury University. And I didn't even know that was happening. But as I was listening to what he was saying, he was a Reformed pastor. I was a bit disappointed at what he was saying, simply because It was too soon as I was listening. If that is happening, I would say it is just too soon to say anything about that. And how he was saying this will soon spread across America. It will usher into this new age of revival and we need to ride that wave and all of that. Um, So after that, you know, online service, I looked it up. And I'm not going to say anything about that. We are not in the business of criticizing other churches or activities. That was a chapel service in, in in the school, in a school. But one evidence that people were talking about, even the secular media, why there was that revival was that there is a 24-7 non-stop service in the place. And I've seen some of the people made pilgrimage to that place to witness and to participate in that. And all of the reports that I'm seeing, some are skeptical, some of them positive, whatever, whatever. So that was that. I didn't think about that. So that was that. But last Sunday, last week, when my, my friend was here, That gave me a week of break. So, you know, I thought, I'm going to go downstairs, my studies, and I'm going to pick up a book, recently purchased book, titled is something like Wrath of God, Unpublished Sermons by Jonathan Edwards. So I went down to pick it up, but I brought brought up a wrong book because the cover looked the same. Instead of wrath, what I picked up was loveliness of Christ by Jonathan Edwards. So I said, oh man, I need wrath. So, so I went downstairs again, and while I was at, in my basement, if you come to my house, I will show you my basement. I have quite a few books down there. And I thought, you know what? Why don't I read full-length biography on Jonathan Edwards? Obviously, I 
read small books and lectures and whatnot. So we know Jonathan Edwards' timeline, what he did, what he said, what he wrote, all of that. But I've never really... Edwards is not my hero. I'm sorry to say that. I don't think I'm not really a fan of anybody. I get excited about a few things and whatnot, but I mean, I'm not a fan of anybody. But Edwards is not my hero. So I thought, you know, I'll just, I've been postponing it. I don't know if you have ever read this Ian Murray's book, Jonathan Edwards. As you could see, to me, this is a, about a month reading. So, but I thought, you know, I have a break. So let me read this and wrath and loveliness of God and whatever. So I'm reading it. Thinking about the revival. And also, I thought, as a church, we desire revival. We want revival in our churches, in this church. So I thought, you know, why don't I give my view upon a revival so that our church people, you, could at least know what their pastor's thinking about when he thinks about revival. I think it'll be good to know. It'll be my subjective view that you do not have to agree. But you would at least know where I am coming from and we could be looking at the same vision, if you will, and we could pray and walk toward that goal. So I thought it would be a good exercise for us. And sometimes I do that to give you historical background. So I will give you, um, I w- I, I've arranged my sermon slash talk slash, I don't know, a bit of lecture in three sections. First is to give you a section from the Bible. What Jesus says in general. Second part would be my conclusion. And the third part would be some of the historical investigation uh, into it. I thought about how am I going to shuffle those three, but I think in those order... I think it will be more beneficial than any other order, simply because it's exhausting for you to listen to historical backgrounds. So I will do that in the last section. But in general, people, it is my impression from reading and studying and being a Christian The New Testament teaching for the church for Christ, church of Jesus Christ, is not so much, the emphasis does not lie in such a phenomenon that we call revival. Rather, there is that consistent tone of the New Testament that teaches us that we should just use the regular means of grace and have this common way of Christian life. So I could have gone to many different sections in the Bible. But would you listen to what Jesus says? 
This really is an extension of the Sermon on the Mount. But chapter 7, just listen to what Jesus says to the, congreg- to the people who are gathered around him. Let me read from verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. And I do believe that is the salvation. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life. And there are who few find it. Jesus does not say everything is election. So those who are elected will naturally come into the kingdom of God. So you just sit and rest. He does not say. He says repent. And here too enter. And those who enter they will know it is by the grace of God. But his command is to enter through the narrow gate. And there are few in number who find it. What that tells me is the church of Christ will be minority in this world. Next one. Beware of the false prophets. There are such people as false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing that is indistinguishable from good prophets. But inwardly, that, how would you know? How could you tell someone is that when inwardly they are ravenous wolves? You cannot. Nobody could tell. And those people are good at wearing sheep's clothing. But what does it say, verse 16? You will know them by their fruits. It is very clear. You will know them by their fruits, not the way in, they, in which they appear to you, not the way in which they speak to you, not the in which things in that they, what they do, but by their fruit you will not guess, but you will know. Verse 20, so then you will know them by their fruits. Fruits, it takes time. So you just have to wait and see, but by their fruits, it assumes that you have enough sense to tell. Because even with the fruit, people are drawn to those personalities, and they will still say they are good prophets. We don't have prophets, they claim to be, but we know, but false pastors. But you see, So many people put their allegiance to those people. And even with bad fruit, they say they are good. But Bible assumes that you have enough sense to distinguish between good and evil. Let's move on. Not everyone, and once again, I'm thinking about the revival. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Jesus' emphasis is in where? 
It's not in what people say. How with so much enthusiasm they say, with intimacy, charisma, they say, Lord, Lord, twice. But those who obey, those who do the will of my Father will enter. You see, there is that quiet tone in the Bible. It does not really condone sensational event. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy. What does prophesy mean? Usually we think of it as preaching. But prophesy here could also mean predicting the future. In your name, cast out demons. Have you seen those instances? I'm, I, I think I have enough credit just because God has shown me a lot of things. I've been through a lot of things too. If you come from those background, my view on the revival would be after 20 or 25 years of experience in my own personal life to draw those in conclusions. But cast out demons is a serious business. In your name do many miracles. Obviously these people will do all of that in Jesus' name. It would be very difficult for you to tell the difference. But none of those will qualify them. You see? All that you see, these things you see, prophesy what will happen in two years. Well, God will, Jesus will return in certain date, cast out demons, sensational events. In your name, do miracles. All of that, they are not sufficient reasons for us to believe they are from Christ. But Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, this is the grand conclusion in this section. Therefore, what does Jesus say? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. It will stand. Who does them? That's the focus. That's the first section. I think there's a benefit in reading this cluster of Jesus' teaching there is a consistent tone for Christians. You listen to my word and you obey is the point. You do not have to follow those people who practice all these miracles, casting out demons, false prophets. By definition, false prophets will draw people to them. There's something that is drawing them. So, taken as a whole in this section, Jesus teaches that you listen and you obey the will of God that is revealed to you from the Word of God. That should be our focus. That should be our desire. Now, that's the first section. Let's go to the second section. That will be my just my view. Once again, 
you could take it or leave it. This is not an exposition of God's word. But what I am seeing in my, in my age, after 20-some years of experience of teaching and preaching in the church, before that, parachurch where I was, I was, we were exposed to all kinds of that. If you come from charismatic church, probably you have seen it too. But what is revival? When people think about revival, Asbury, all of that, that exciting event that people call revival, they have usually this big revivals they have in mind. Let me give you a definition. I pulled it from different chapters from Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Revival. Something like this. Revival is that sovereign, monergistic, mighty movement of the Spirit of God that awakens, converts, rouses, and quickens a large number of people primarily designed to revive the church, but also to call the attention of the world outside. It is the visitation of God, or outpouring of the Holy Spirit, affecting churches, districts, or perhaps a whole country. It is, in a sense, he says, a repetition of the day of Pentecost. I've served a, uh, two churches in my life. Big churches, but very different in character. One was a Presbyterian and Reformed church. The other one was fundamentalist church with charismatic bent. Both of the churches, their motto of, motto of the church was to be a church that replicates Book of Acts. All that you see in the Book of Acts, we want to replicate. Lloyd-Jones too is a sense of repetition of the day of Pentecost. So for all Bible-believing Christians, whatever your persuasion, when we think about revival, we believe it is a Bible-warranted. Bible is endorsing revival as such because we see it where? Chapter 2. Spirit comes and thousands of people come into church or come to Christ. So we desire that. We want that to happen. Is it wrong to desire that? I don't think so. But if you notice what Peter says, Peter never says, 
This is the paradigm for the New Testament church. So you try hard to replicate what we were able to do in chapter 2. What does he say? He says, this is what God said through the prophet Joel. The point of his sermon was, what you witness is the fulfillment of the last days. The last days has arrived and has come, and what Joel predicted is happening, and the end of the age has come. So point is not so much that this is the blueprint from the coming of the Spirit to all of Acts 2 and ongoing chapters that you should be able to replicate. I don't think the point is the replication, but it is really historic and historical events really one time that is happening. But we desire such event to happen. So if you would ask me, what does revival look like? What should it look like in a positive sentence? I, I would, I, I, 20 years ago, if you asked me, I would tell you. But now I am a bit hesitant. And I really don't know when somebody says, I want the revival to happen, like the pastor, the Asbury revival to spread across America. I really don't know what that means. So I cannot put it in a positive terms, but I know some of the reasons why I am a bit hesitant. It's my, my personal view. Few warnings and what's holding me back. First of all, revivals as such, inordinate desire for such event leaves you and your daily, normal, ordinary Christian life either unfulfilled or unsatisfied. And usually it defines ordinary state of church life as a failure. Something is wrong, or this is not all there is to it. We must desire that kind of phenomenon that will sweep across the land. Millions of people coming to Christ, church energized, and all of that. But there's, there's that warning that I could say from my own experience. That inordinate desire. I've seen that even in Martin Lloyd-Jones. What is driving Martin Lloyd-Jones in his ministry past century, 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, was not so much he was an expositor. But what's driving Lloyd-Jones is his 
yearning for a revival. He's a student of church history. And you, don't, you do not see that in Romans or things like that. But when you read his book on revival, Joy Unspeakable, even his works on Puritans, even preaching and preachers, all of these Lloyd-Jones, he has that strong desire for revival to happen. And sometimes I would say I have to disagree. As great as he was in his exposition of the scriptures, when you have that bent or desire, it inverts the scripture. But that's for another day. For in general Christian life, I am simply warning that God has designed our Christian lives to be lived out in a normal, ordinary, common way that the New Testament talks about. Number two, if you have certain types of uh, revival, in our lifetime, as far as we could tell, there was no such revival as the first or second great awakening. But those revivals, big category, is replicated in small churches. When church grows, people experience. But what I've noticed is, no, noticed is this, serving two churches in my own experience that went through such a small revival in their churches, there are that nostalgia for that. And people, they're always trying to top that experience that you had in the 80s and 90s. That's the reference point. Compared to that, when people were coming to church, growing in our own little context, up to 2,000 people, that's a revival in a small scale. Different emphasis, different traditions, but people who have experienced, they are thankful and all that, but they always remember that golden era. Lloyd-Jones, he always talks about 1904, 1905 Welsh revival. That's where he's from. Always. For him, that's the golden age. And we don't have that, so he's always looking for that moment to be replicated. Number three for me is this. Living for a non-local church spiritual life or experience is always a problematic thing. So what do, what do you mean? It all depends on the definition. What do you mean when you say you desire revival to spread across America? Some kind of nationwide outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's a good thing, obviously. But was there ever a time in church history when God poured His Spirit upon non-believers in mass? That's something that you need to know. I do not think so. So when people say we need revival in America, what do you mean? And what people sometimes do is that they become like storm chasers. They chase conferences. They chase after meetings, their own heroes, speakers. 
whoever. So their spiritual life is constantly on the move. Now, you can watch it on YouTube. Everything is on YouTube. But people who are not satisfied in a local church, that's what I am talking about. Fourth one. Whenever I encounter Lloyd-Jones, he talks about revival. I ask myself this question. You more than anybody else, you know better. What happened after? What many people have in mind is that vague idea of so many millions, thousands of people coming to church and becoming Christian. It never really happened. I will show you. But second of all, what happened prior to the revival, during the revival, and more importantly, after the revival? Nobody talks about that. Everyone has this golden age idea that we want that to happen again and again and again. Let me tell you just a few things. 20th century revivals, people say there are few. First one, Welsh revival, as I talked about, 1904 to 1905. Interesting, and if you read some of the accounts, this to me is a genuine revival, okay? But recently, this year, January, I read a report, and so I looked it up. BBC reported that number of Satanists in England and Wales has more than doubled in a decade. And I thought that was very interesting because I always, you know, think about those, you know, areas in England, Wales, Scottish areas, all of that. But Welsh fathers will turn in their own graves listening to that place once experienced the revival has now become such a place. What about 1907? In my own history, there was a Pyongyang revival in, at the time, it was not divided Korea, but Pyongyang, the Jerusalem of East. You could look it up. It was, there was a genuine revival. That was 1907. So, guess what happened in 2007? 2007 was the 100th your anniversary for Korean churches. I was here, obviously, in Queens, but there was a great expectation in Korean churches that God will do amazing things. God will bring about a new revival in that 100th year anniversary. There was that heat. There was that great expectation And church historians came out, gave lectures, and people became famous. And they studied 1907 revival, trying to induce the revival. It never came. Number three, the great awakening that we are going to look at for next, I don't know, a few minutes. First great awakening happened really in the New England area to the middle colonies, but usually it is confined to the New England. Look at it now. All those places that experienced those great revivals, I'm simply asking, 
It didn't last. How long did it last? Not for long. Was it really 100% rose, rosy picture of thousands and millions of people coming to Christ? And more importantly, what happened after? You see, people really don't know and don't care. And in general, revival is a great thing. Who would oppose? Who would oppose our pouring of the Holy Spirit, people coming to Christ? I wouldn't either. But I'm simply saying, after living through some of the small-scale revivals, some things that I've seen and studied and read, and, and please don't take it as, a, oh, you're a pastor, and that's why you're saying all of that. No. I wasn't a pastor 20 years ago. I wasn't a pastor when I first became a Christian. I've seen all of that, demon casting, all these prophecies, and all of that, those people. It's not just not healthy. I was from parachurch, like I said, missions and all of that. Whenever I thought about these great revivals, I wasn't as excited as I was back then. So I was thinking, why? Why? What changed me? Did I become lukewarm? Did I simply become older? And no, I, when I thought about it, really, this is, I was able to write this down. There is such thing as yearning for a revival on all of the wonderful works of God and yet miss Jesus Christ. It doesn't have to be either or proposition. But if you are not careful, what people are yearning for is revival. And the great phenomenon, whatever gifts, whatever you know, spiritual gifts that they desire, but always it will leave you thirsty, hungry, unsatisfied, unfulfilled. Why is that? Because New Testament nowhere really teaches us to seek for a, such a revival. But seek him, his kingdom, and his righteousness. Colossians 2.10 says, In him you have been filled. We do not have to be filled by any other events. As great as it may be, you have to understand, Christ alone will fill you, and you have to go to Christ. And we have listened to Paul in the Philippians. What did he say? For to me live is to, is Christ. He does not say I am chasing after some kind of revival. He never says I am so disappointed I am in prison and X2 is not happening again. He knew about X2, but it was not the reference point. He was simply content and he was thankful that other people were preaching the gospel. But his focus was always what? To live is Christ. I live for Christ and for me to live on in this body, in this flesh, is basically fruitful labor. Rather, I desire to be with the Lord and I don't know what to desire. So, as Christians, we should live our Christian lives faithfully in a local church, 
living for Christ, satisfied in Christ. That's the point. You must be satisfied in Christ. Revival will not satisfy you. Whatever phenomenon that you experience will not last or it will not be a lasting satisfaction. When you feel empty, it is not that you should chase after some kind of events, conferences, conference speakers, whatever, whoever your hero is. You need to pick it up, the Bible. You need to read on your own, study it, and pray and live your Christian life sacrificially, joyfully, where God has assigned you. That should be the norm for Christian life. If God gives you certain kind of revival, that's great. But again, you will experience up and down. Inevitably, you will go through those deep valley experience. It's a normal process, and you do not ask, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with this church? What's wrong with our pastor? What's wrong with our elders? What's wrong with this unspiritual friends? You simply go to God and seek Him and ask Him to fill you, and only in Christ, whatever that means for you, only Christ will give you satisfaction. That's my, that's my view. Now, let me give you the snapshot of Jonathan Edwards and uh, the First Great Awakening. Now, it's good for you to have certain reference. If I talk about this guy, Jonathan Edwards, I know you know him. When I first came to America, when I was in Texas, I was just in an English lit class. And the teacher said, we are going to study a sermon. Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in Where? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I thought to myself, I remember that time, wow, this is a Christian nation. People are studying sermons. I've never heard, I've never heard up to that point, people studying sermons? Wow, this is a Christian nation. And I remember reading it. I know you know this guy. Once again, when was the Westminster Confession? 1643 to 47. You need to know that because everything will make sense. 1643 already, confession is being drafted, but already the war has begun between Charles I and the parliamentarian forces. So already, it, the Charles I, who was his father, do you know? Charles I, his father. James. You know about Jamestown? Do you know about King James Version? That's him. Early 1600. So Jamestown, obviously people came here because they didn't like Charles' father. So people began their journeys across the uh, Atlantic to come here really from 1640s and 50s. And people came here, settled in Boston, Massachusetts, and all over 
now America. But where this guy, Jonathan Edwards, was born, East Windsor, Connecticut, all of them, people who are living in that area, were from England. He's born in 1703. Fifty years later, that first wave of immigration, 50 years after, 1703, 1758, he dies when he was 54 as the president of what is now Princeton. His father was a pastor, faithful pastor, Timothy Edwards, in East Windsor. You can look it up, it's still there. His father's from, he was educated in Harvard College. His mother is the famous one, Esther Stoddard, a daughter of Solomon Stoddard, who was a very influential pastor of Northampton. You could look it up, it's still there. Northampton, Southampton, Easthampton, Westhampton, it is all there. So he went to Yale, what becomes, he went to College of Connecticut, and the same year he went in, it becomes Yale College, after the name Elihu Yale, who gave money. So when he was 23 years old, his grandfather's church, and his grandfather wanted to retire. He was 83. So the committee called him. They called another guy, but he didn't come, so they called Jonathan Edwards. His experience up to that point was one year pulpit supply in Manhattan Church, a Presbyterian church. He had a one-year experience, and he had a few years of tutorship. When you hear about tutor, they are basically professors at Yale University, or college at the time. He goes there when he was 23 years old. His grandfather dies after five years or so, and he becomes sole pastor. Northampton is Massachusetts, but at the time, Massachusetts and Connecticut, all these towns, if you look it up, all these towns that was the major scene behind his life is through the Connecticut River. Connecticut River Valley. You find that river, you follow that, you will find all the major points like Hotfield or Hartford, New Haven, all of that follow that river. Let me give you the background. Northampton, Massachusetts. What was the scene like? It is very helpful for you to know this. And I am not, even though the title says it is the first great awakening. I am going to zoom in to his church and what happened there. 1727, when he was a pastor, young pastor, each family was given four acres of land. And every family worked on soil. Everyone was a farming family. Best of the land was reserved for the prominent family which we do not understand. At the time, America was a free country, but a lot of, if not most of them, came from old England. And the social status was still there. So the best of the land was reserved for the prominent families who founded the town. 
and who were elected to the whatever the mayorship, whatever that they, they had. So that was for them. Interestingly, you will find in his church, Northampton Church, where his grandfather was a longtime pastor, one of the most influential pastors of the Western Massachusetts and Bay Colony. It will fit about 1,000 people in the church, but you cannot see it anywhere. There was a committee, about three of them, who assigned each family according to the prominence into their own seats. Can you believe that that was happening? But you need to know these things, the social structures and, and so on. So closer to the pulpit, you are more prominent. And most of the families were in the same spot for decades until their death. They will eat breakfast, dinner, and supper. So dinner is lunch. Because they have the roster, township roster, they know exactly how many people were in that city, in that village. They had 200 families and about 1,000 people in Northampton. Average number of family was five, not 10, not 20. We think of that back then, people had like 20 children. That's not really the case. We have the exact number of people, and average, about five, because everybody had to farm. You cannot take care of like 10 kids. These thousand people lived together, even though the land was kind of spread out, for three reasons, social friendship, Education in a common school, but more importantly, for a united public worship. That's why they didn't live apart, miles apart. They were really from the Puritan background, dissenters, they say. So the worship was very important. In the, at the time in New England, when he was ministering, even his own view, the Sabbath began at 6 p.m. Saturday evening. Can you believe that? Everybody at the time believed proper Christian worship on Sunday starts from Saturday, 6 p.m., just like the Old Testament Fourth Commandment. Christmas was not celebrated because nobody knew about what that was. They have morning worship on Sunday, and they have what is called intermission, and 2 p.m. they gather again, and where up to two hours of sermon time. People were from English stock, and because they came from pretty much the same towns, they had a very tight-knit, strong community spirit. Everybody knew each other, everybody knew who's from which village back home. But now when he came, that tight spirit is breaking up. 1720, about 500 communicant members. 500 communicant members, but about 1,000 attendants. So 1730s, about 1,300 people were attending. When people talk about the First Great Awakening, it's about 1730s and onward. But I'm going to draw your attention to that revival that happened prior to the Great Awakening in 1734 when 
Jonathan Edwards was about 30 years old. He's simply doing his own ministry. And there was a small revival in his church. And he talks about it in Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God. And he publishes this, and he becomes famous because of that track. He says this, listen to this, Revival. How did it begin? In this way, that the Spirit of God began extraordinary work wonderfully to work amongst us, And there were, very suddenly, one after another, five or six persons who were all too, who to all appearances, savingly converted. In his own church, the revival in his own church began with about five or six people, and he will never say they were converted because He's a Calvinistic minister. He does not know. It appears to be. There are good grounds for it, he would say. There are reasons to believe. But notice how small number of people are converted. That's it. That's how it began. And he continues to say, A great and earnest concern about great things of religion and the eternal world became universal in all parts of the town and among persons of all degrees, and such a change in conviction speedily produced a visible difference in the life of the town. Now, again, in that town, there was one general store and one head maker. That's it. Everybody's farmer. Everybody comes to church. Thousand people, thousand attendants except for the elderly people and sick people and very young people. So if five or six people are converted in that church, what do you think people are going to talk about? You're going to talk about that. You see, there was a very different setting from us. And because of those people, talk of the town is that conversion. And I am not trying to cast this in some kind of naturalistic explanation, but what I'm saying is it was a very different setting, smaller setting. And he says, worship changed. And here it is. As that revival went on, you read those accounts, you will find in the first and the second grade, or especially first, this. People scream. People weep. People fall down from chair. And people stay hours after service, lingering in the church building. This is 1735. When the Great Awakening happens about five years later, it gets worse. It gets worse in certain sense. Now people talk about dancing, prophesying, seeing the visions, all of those things. At the time, they didn't have a category to explain that. In our time, we categorize that as charismatic Movement Is it the same, same thing? People say different things. I would say it is. So when you open it up and, and actually investigate what happened in their revival, you know the usual talk is this. 
Even Edwards would always say, suddenly it happened. Sudden, sudden appearance of God. God came, Spirit of God, suddenly, suddenly, suddenly. That's, that's, that's the term people do not understand. That's why people, when people talk about revival, we think about sovereign spirit coming like a wind. Suddenly comes, monogistic walk of God. I think that's really kind of wrong. Because when you hear the word suddenly from Edwards and all the people, and I've heard nobody talks about it, even Ian Murray, no revival scholars were explaining it in this way. But what I, what I could gather is this. Why did he experience revival in his church? It's not because there's some kind of general revival is happening and it's like fire coming over to his church. It happened because of his regular ministry of preaching. And when he says it's sudden, he's a humble guy. He does not say what well, happened because of my preaching. I didn't understand this until I read his sermons. Jonathan Edwards, when we learned Jonathan Edwards, all the professors they talked about was two things. Religious affection, which is the defense of the awakening, and the freedom of will, both of which are very long and boring. Instead, they, have, they should have said, if you want to understand Edwards, the greatness of him, you read his sermons. Like I said, best of Jonathan Edwards is not his loveliness of Christ. Best work of his work, Jonathan Edwards, is about wrath. Not even sinners in the hands of an angry God. Look it up and read, and you will get a sense of what he was saying. The justice of God in the damnation of sinners. That's the title. The justice of God in the damnation of sinners. You know the year, the published year was 1734. Northampton Revival. Small number of people were coming to Christ. They were converted. It was expected. Thousand people, not everybody's converted. Why? Why conversion? It is not so much that some kind of general spirit of revival was happening. No, I don't think so. As far as I could tell, you read. When I read that, I made sense. He is good at driving people. I felt like, as I was reading it, that sermon, Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners. I mean, he drives you into the corner, and unlike anything I have ever read or heard, he punches you. Only thing that I was able to say was, that's like Mike Tyson puts you in a corner, and he's giving you the blows. There's no escaping of it. And I was thinking, wow, if I heard that, whatever the manner of preaching was, if you actually hear that, then, I mean, you would break down. Go ahead and read it. I do believe God has blessed his preaching. That's why they, his revival in Northampton predates the first great awakening. I will end, I know already I will spend too, much, too long a time you know, let me save this for the next week because next week we have the Lord's Supper. 
And this great guy gets kicked out from his own church because of the Lord's Supper. And probably I could talk about that. I'll talk about the aftermath of the revival. 1735, in his own church. But a lot of those conversions were happening in different locations. You could call it pre-revival, but I would call it basically faithful preachers preaching the Word of God and God blessing it. And then where general revival happens. But we could talk about that some of the questions next week. Let's pray.